very good morning to each of every one of you here at church and to those of you joining us on live stream. Um, my name is Lawrence. Um, I am a member of One Covenant Church. Uh, this morning, I will be reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, 19 to 23, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, and chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh and speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my hand, by my name, 
the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched hand, outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs, and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. And they did just as the Lord commanded them. This is the word of the Lord. Mike Tess. Good morning, everyone. For those who do not know me, my name is Yen. Throughout the sermon, I'll be making uh, references to the passages in the Bible outside of the passages printed in the bulletin. So it will be beneficial if you have an open Bible with you during the sermon. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, send us your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our eyes. Help us to see what else you want to see. Help us to feel what you want us to feel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the sermon outline printed in your bulletin, you will know that I have failed to participate in the grand OCC tradition of employing the use of alliteration in my sermon outline. So to compensate for that, I will partake in another grand OCC tradition, which is to spoil movies from the pulpit. Uh, So spoiler alert from Spider-Man No Way Home. So in the latest series of Spider-Man movies, The secret identity of Peter Parker, who is played by Tom Holland, is known to the two people closest to him, his best friend Ned and his girlfriend MJ, played by Zendaya. By the end of the latest movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, everything about Peter Parker was wiped away from the memories of both Ned and MJ. In the ending scene of this movie, Peter approaches MJ, who is working as a barrister in a cafe, 
and a very painful scene plays out between them. See, Peter knows MJ. She was his girlfriend, and she was with him by his side through all three movies. But because MJ's memory was manipulated, she does not recognize him. Peter knows MJ. Peter knows MJ very well, but she does not know him. In the same way, if you look at today's text, we can see a similar kind of dynamic. In chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord Yahweh that I should obey his voice? I do not know this Yahweh. See, God knows Pharaoh very well, but Pharaoh does not know God at all. Yet, when we reach the end of today's passage in chapter 7, verse 5, God tells Moses that, Although the Egyptians do not know him now, by the time God is done, oh, they will soon know him. But more important than whether the, or not the Egyptians know who God is, is whether or not the Israelites know who God is. In fact, this is one of the main themes of the entire book of Exodus. And a repeated motif is what God says here in chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So do the Israelites, do they really know their God? We shall see over the next few weeks. But as for us today, what can we know about God through this passage? I'm going to suggest three things I'll show in your outline. One, we can know about God's faithfulness, and He's a God who keeps His promises. Two, we can know about God's power and His sovereignty, that He's a God who rules the whole universe. And lastly, we can know about God's love, and that He's a God who redeems His people. Let's go to the text. In last week's sermon preached by Joel, we see that God appeared to Moses as the burning bush, and in that encounter, He commanded Joel to confront Pharaoh, to ask him to let the Israelites go from their bondage. Now Moses attempts to negotiate his way out of this task, and God gets angry at Moses. But God sends Aaron, his brother, to help him. So in today's passage, in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron, they confront Pharaoh, and they ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. As we see in verses 4 to 9, Pharaoh not only refuses, but to express his displeasure at this request, he gives instructions that no more straw be provided to the Israelite slaves to make bricks. Instead, they have to go gather their own raw materials from the fields to make up for this lack of straw. And despite this new responsibility, the number of bricks they're supposed to make remains the same. So in other words, Pharaoh decided to torture the Israelites even more by forcing them to a greater and harsher amount of slave labor. Now, how did the Israelites respond to this? Look at verse 15. At first, the Israelite foremen went to Pharaoh to plead to Pharaoh for mercy. And Pharaoh refused, and instead he called them idle and lazy. Discouraged, the Israelite foremen got angry at Moses and Aaron. And as we see in verse 21, they asked for God to judge Moses and Aaron for making their lives so difficult. Now let me pause here to make an observation. Did the Israelite foremen, did they not know what Moses and Aaron were doing? Let's turn back to the end of chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. 
So after the encounter with God at the burning bush, Moses and Aaron went to gather the elders of the Israelites and told them about what God had promised. In fact, it is very likely at this meeting, Moses performed the miracles that God told him to perform, turning the staff into the snake, instantaneously turning his skin leprous and healing it just as instantaneously, and then turning river water into blood. Moses performed these miracles before the Israelites, told them of God's promise to deliver them from the Egyptians, and as we see in verse 31, the Israelites believed and they worshipped. We fast forward half a chapter, we now see the Israelite foremen cursing Moses and Aaron and asking God to punish them. Notice how fast their hearts have gotten discouraged and how fast they forgot the miracles that Moses had performed to prove to them that God is on their side. They now believe that God will not make good on his promises and God will not deliver them from Egypt. They no longer trust God. And for many of us, it is easy to be full of enthusiasm and to be full of faith for God when God has recently done amazing things for us and we feel so thankful and so appreciative towards God. But when life starts to get mundane, or worse, when life starts to become really difficult and really painful, it is also easy to lose our trust in God and either take matters into our own hands or to get bitter and angry, just like the Israelite foreman did. If I am to be honest, I can speak of many, many times in my own life where I've forgotten how God has been good to me, and when my life turned difficult, instead of going to God to seek Him, I became bitter and angry. I blamed my church leaders for not coming to my rescue fast enough. I blamed my church community for not being sensitive enough to my hurt and my felt needs. I'm not saying we cannot grow in our ability to love and serve one another, but I'm saying that in those times where I am bitter and angry, and just like the Israelite foreman, those are the times where I have forgotten God, and I have forgotten God's character. It is times where I have proven that I do not know God well at all. And what we all need to remember, what the Israelite foreman need to remember, was that God is a God who always fulfills the promises he has made. God is a faithful God, despite how faithless his people are. God has promised to deliver Israel from Egypt. And we know the rest of the story of Exodus. God does make good on that promise, and God does indeed deliver them. But to the Israelite foreman in chapter 5, who just got told by Pharaoh that they need to suffer harsher labor, what the Israelite foreman needed to do was to cling to the promise that God has made, to cling to the knowledge of God and God's character, to trust in God's faithfulness, despite how much suffering and pain they must currently endure. There is an important lesson for us here. God has indeed given many promises to us in the Bible. God has promised to his people that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. God has promised us that all things work for the good of those who love him. That's from Romans 8, chapter 28. God will fulfill these promises. But how God fulfills these promises may not be what we imagine it to be. 
just like the Israelite foreman who wishes that God could rescue them from Egypt immediately without having to do harsher labor. But just because God will fulfill these promises doesn't mean God will not allow us to go through suffering, to go through periods of waiting, or even to go through periods of discouragement. Let's not have an unrealistic perception of the Christian life. There is going to be suffering, rejection, and pain. But, but, it will be worth it. Because just like the story of Exodus, God always delivers on his promises in the end. And when he does so, it will be glorious. It will be worth it. So persevere on in the faith, my friends, and follow Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Your faith journey is a marathon. So run your race like a marathon runner would. Press on, persevere, run to win the prize. It's a long journey, so you will need every resource at your disposal. You will need prayer. You will need the Bible. You will need the community of fellow Christians to love, support, and encourage you. And sometimes it still won't be enough. But press on and persevere. Run to win the prize. And it will be worth it because God always delivers on His promises in the end. No that your God is faithful, and He is a God who always keeps His promises. Let's move on to the second point. Let's go back to the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh at the start of chapter 5. So Pharaoh says, Who is this Yahweh? I have not heard of Him before. Now some commentators say that it's actually quite unlikely that Pharaoh literally has never heard of the God of Israelites before. After all, the Egyptians are a highly advanced, highly literate, highly sophisticated civilization. And the Pharaoh would likely be highly educated about the culture of not just his own people, but the people who reside with them in Egypt. If you go all the way back to chapter 1 in Exodus, in verse 8, it says that the new Pharaoh of Egypt did not know Joseph. In the same way, it's quite unlikely that the Pharaoh of chapter 1 literally did not know anything about Joseph. Joseph bringing the Israelites into Egypt only happened about 100 years before that. And in the highly educated ruler of Egypt, he will have certainly known the history of how these immigrant people came to reside in Egypt. So in both of these two cases, when Pharaoh says he does not know Joseph, or when Pharaoh says he does not know Yahweh, the God of Israel, it seems more likely that the word know is not used in the cognitive sense, but in the relational sense. In other words, in chapter 5, when Pharaoh says to Moses, who is this Yahweh, I do not know him, he does not mean, oh, I have never heard of your God before, please tell me more about him. But rather he means, whoever your God is, whether or not his name is Yahweh, that is of no concern to me, I do not care and I do not need to care. And some context is important. So at this point in history, the Egyptians are the most advanced, the most prosperous, 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 the most cultured people in the entire world. And even in the undiscovered world in ancient China, the civilization there would pale in comparison to the wealth and the military might of the Egyptians. Pharaoh 
is the king of the most powerful civilization known in the land. And on top of that, in Egyptian culture, Pharaoh is worshipped as a deity. He is considered to be a god by his people. He is literally the most powerful living entity that he knows and perhaps he has ever known. So when this poor immigrant race of slaves come to him and say, you must listen to what our God says, Pharaoh understandably will say, no, I don't. I don't recognize your God. Your people are so weak, so powerless. Meanwhile, I am the king of the most powerful people in the world. I'm the God of the most powerful people in the world. Why should I care about your God? So that's what's going on in exchange between Moses and Pharaoh in the start of chapter 5. But it is precisely this exchange that will set up the next few chapters of Exodus. The poor and weak immigrant slaves and their God Yahweh on one side, in direct conflict with Egypt, the richest and most powerful people in the world, the king and the Egyptian gods on the other side, Yahweh versus Pharaoh, Israel versus Egypt. So who wins? Spoiler alert, God wins. God always wins. In the eyes of Pharaoh and Egyptians, Pharaoh is considered the self-sufficient and the self-evident one. He has power over all of Egypt. He can do whatever he wants. He answers to no one else. And that is what it means to be self-evident. I don't need to answer to anyone else. I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I just am. But in reality, Pharaoh was not self-evident at all. In fact, God is the only true self-sufficient and self-evident one. And that is what the name of God, Yahweh, means. As Joe preached last week, when God says, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, he's literally saying, I am what I am. I am the God who is self-existing. I am the God who is self-evident. I am the God who is absolutely dependent on nothing and no one else. And this is another key theme in the book of Exodus. Only God, creator of heavens and earth, is truly self-evident. Only he can make a bush, bush burn without consuming the bush. Pharaoh is indeed king over a great nation. But God is far superior. He is king over the entire universe. Pharaoh, despite how much power he wields, and despite how highly he thinks of himself, is nothing before the arm of Almighty God. And we shall see this in the weeks to come. Anyone who dares set himself against God will lose, and he will lose badly. Or we might say to ourselves, oh, this Pharaoh is so foolish. Who would dare to pit himself against God? Who would be so foolish to incur the wrath of the creator and ruler of the entire universe? But do you know that every time we commit a sin, we are guilty of exactly the same thing? Every time we sin, we are saying to God, I know what you want me to do, but I won't do it because... I will do what I want to do instead. Each time we sin, we are doing the same thing as Pharaoh did. 
we pit ourselves against God. We deny Him His kingship in our lives and we say to Him, no, I want to rule instead. I will be king instead. The only difference between Pharaoh and ourselves is that God has chosen to show us mercy. Romans 5 verse 10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his own son. And just like Pharaoh, we too were once enemies of God. And every time we sin, we act as if we are still enemies of God. And this is one reason why every Sunday we come to church, we take time to confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness. It's to recognize how grievous our sins are to God and to God's nature as the self-evident one, the ruler of the whole universe. So each time we sin, we are attempting to usurp his throne in our hearts, to deny him his kingship, and just like what Pharaoh is doing in chapter 5. But there is one key difference between Pharaoh and us, and that is God has chosen to show us mercy. And bring, that brings us to our third point. Our God is a God who loves and redeems his own people. Let's return to the story of Moses and Aaron. So after the foreman cursed Aaron and Moses for making their life difficult to them, in chapter 5, verse 22, Moses turns back to God. And what did Moses do? He, he grumbles. Just like he grumbled against God in chapter 4, Moses grumbled here in chapter 5. Moses himself has not yet learned. And just like the foreman, Moses himself doesn't truly trust in God's providence. But God, in his patience, in his forbearance, responds to Moses in chapter 6. In verse 2, God says to Moses, Remember, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the self-evident one. In verse 3, God says, I am the same God who physically appeared before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the forefathers of your entire people. And I am the same God who have made covenants with these forefathers, including the promise to give the land of Canaan to your people. In verse 5, I know your people are suffering under the Egyptians, and I have decided that now is the time for me to act on my covenant promise to your forefathers. And here in verse 6, he says, and I will redeem you. I will redeem you. And this is actually the first time in the Bible God talks about redeeming his people. There are actually two ways, or at least two ways, we can understand the concept of redemption. The first way, the redeemer is someone who executes justice on behalf of someone else. For example, if someone has been murdered, a family member can act as his Redeemer, to pursue justice on a person, on behalf of the person who has been murdered, including to hunt down the murderer and to bring him to justice with authorities. And this is the sense of the word the kinsman Redeemer is used in the story of Ruth and Boaz. But there is a second sense of the word of redemption. In a second way, to redeem something is to restore something which has been previously lost back to his rightful ownership. So for example, let us assume that I have some cash flow problems and I've decided to mortgage my house. Actually, don't have a house to mortgage, but never mind. Uh, let's assume I mortgage my house. 
But a short time later, I've earned back the money. I've decided it is now time for me to redeem the house back from the bank. It's been restored back to its rightful ownership, which is me. In what sense of the word redeem is used in verse 6? I actually think it is both. God will act as the executor of justice on behalf of the Israelites who have been oppressed and dealt injustice by the Egyptians. And God's justice executed will be a frightful sight indeed. And that is why in chapter 7, verse 5, God says, Once I have carried out my justice with my strong arm, the Egyptians will know, will know who they're really dealing with. That's redemption in the first sense. But I also think God is also redeeming in the second sense. See, under captivity, the Egyptians claimed the Israelites to be their own. They claimed that Israelite slaves were owned by the Egyptians. But the Israelites don't belong to the Egyptians. They belong to God. And God is going, is God, God is going to act to bring them back, back to their rightful ownership. I think when we talk about Jesus and how Jesus redeems us from our sins, it is helpful to remember the second sense of the word redemption. And yes, Jesus is freeing us from the bondage of captivity to sin, but he's not saving us to unbridled freedom. He's saving us back to restore us back to being under the one who should rightfully rule us, which is King Jesus himself. And that's why in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, Jesus redeems us to save us from our sins. That is true. But it's also equally true that Jesus redeems us for himself, which is why, which is what's truly best for us anyway. Now, we might imagine that unbridled freedom is no yoke and no burden at all. But nothing can be further from the truth. We just become enslaved to our own passions instead and become yoked to our fleshly desires. Now, we might enjoy that for a short while, but soon enough, we burden under the law of diminishing returns and we'll be exhausted from continually, continually chasing the next dopamine fix. Self-indulgence is a terrible yoke to put yourselves under and choose Jesus instead, for indeed, his yoke is much easier than being a slave to our own passions. But back to Exodus and back to the two ways that God redeems his people. Why does God do that? Why, why does God redeem? Now, looking at text here, I have two answers to that question. The first answer lies in verse 5. I have remembered my covenant. Yahweh is a faithful God who will fulfill and who will always fulfill the promises that he has made. So he will act on his covenant promises, and he will never fail to fulfill them. That's the first answer. But there is a second answer that is found in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, the self-evident one. That you shall know that Yahweh, the self-evident one, is your God. 
that you shall know that you belong to me as my people, just as I offer myself to you as your God. You don't belong to any other. You belong to me. The second reason why God redeems is so that his people may know him as the covenant God, that they may know of his might, his power, in the way he destroys the Egyptians, that they may know of his faithfulness in keeping his covenant promises. And if I may add, there's a third thing to know about God's character here, which is his grace. His Israelites do not mercy, do not deserve the deliverance. They were very unfaithful, very forgetful. But God is gracious. God has shown them mercy. And God continues to love them as his covenant people. Why does God redeem? God redeems so that his people may know him. If we come back to the central theme of this sermon, what does it mean to know God? And why is knowing God important? And before we answer that question, I want us to ponder a fundamental question about human nature. What does it mean to be a human? Is there purpose to human life? And many poets and philosophers have observed that fundamental to human nature is a desire to know and to be known. And these, some poets and philosophers will go even further to say that this, this is the purpose of human life, to know and to be known. Dr. Kurt Thompson, a Christian psychiatrist, uh, he wrote three books on Christianity and neurobiology. He agrees with these poets and philosophers. He says that according to the latest scientific findings, that human beings do appear to be programmed to desire deep interpersonal relationships, deep relationships of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved. And when people find themselves in a community where such deep relationships exist, they flourish. Now, on the flip side, when people are conditioned in such a way that prevents them from forming such deep personal relationships, they suffer problems. And this becomes the source of many, many modern-day psychological issues. If we believe that human beings were intentionally designed and intentionally created by a God who never makes mistakes, that means that God has designed us for the purpose of knowing and being known. But knowing and being known by who? Theologian J.I. Packer puts this very succinctly. He asks, what are we made for? The answer, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? The answer, to know God. And let me pause here to address the non-Christians among us. Why are you here today? Why are you listening to this sermon? Is it because you have felt longings in your own heart that everything else in this world cannot truly fulfill? Is it because you have sought to find satisfaction in things such as money, power, popularity, entertainment, and found them all ultimately unsatisfying? Or perhaps you long for deep personal relationships, but real people are fallible, and real people hurt one another, and you long to find a more stable and reliable solution. If that sounds like you, 
then maybe, just maybe, God wants you to hear the message today that you were made for knowing God and for being known by God. You were created for loving God and being loved by God. You were designed for delighting in God and being delighted in by God. And this is the secret to humanity. This is the true purpose of our lives. This is why we are born and why we exist. As St. Augustine has said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We are made for knowing God and being known by God. But there is a big difference between knowing God and knowing about God. It is one thing to say that I know many things about probably our future Prime Minister, Lawrence Wong. I know he was born into a Methodist family. I know he plays the electric guitar. But it's another thing to say that I know Minister Lawrence Wong personally. See, if I know many things about Lawrence Wong, my personal life is not affected much by this knowledge. But if I know Lawrence Wong personally, my life is going to be affected a big deal by this knowledge. Perhaps I may even need to hire bodyguards. In the same way, we can fill our heads with much theology and doctrine many facts about God, but we may still be deeply impoverished with our personal, relational knowledge of God, the real knowledge that changes and affects the way we live our lives. How then can we get this knowledge of God? How then can we get to know God? The book of Exodus is an Old Testament book, Old Testament book and God, God no longer speaks directly to the prophets like he did in Old Testament. So what about now in New Testament times? And let me read from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in New Testament times, He has spoken to us by His Son. If you want to know God today, we have to know God through Jesus Christ, His Son. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. If you want to know God today, there is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only path. Only through Jesus will you get to know the God who keeps promises, the God who rules over the universe, and a God who loves and redeems his people. And what exactly do I mean by only through Jesus? I mean that only through recognizing that Jesus has died for your sins on the cross, in so doing redeeming you from the captivity of your sin, only by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is indeed the rightful ruler of the universe and the ruler over your own life, but only by committing to love and serve Jesus for the rest of your life. Only then will you get to know God and experience being known by God. Only then will you get to experience the satisfaction and meaning in life for which you are designed for. And let me return back to the ending of Spider-Man, No Way Home. In the final conversation between Peter Parker and MJ, 
those with a keen eye will have noticed that MJ was wearing a necklace. That necklace is a broken black Dahlia necklace, which Peter gave to MJ in the second movie, back they were still dating. So even though MJ no longer remembers who Peter Parker is, and therefore she cannot remember who she got that necklace from, a part of her knows that that necklace is really important to her. A part of her knows that necklace is given to her by someone who really loves her. She keeps it close to her. She wears it. And even though MJ no longer knows Peter Parker, her heart instinctively knows that she is known by someone who loves her. Does your heart instinctively know that somehow there is more to life than what the material universe can provide? Does your heart instinctively know there should be something that can provide you with true fulfillment, true meaning, and true satisfaction, but somehow your mind just can't find the right thing to fill in that hole in your life? And let me close by sharing a quote from C.S. Lewis. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. My friends, we are made to know God, to be known by God, to love God and to be loved by God, to delight in God and to be delighted in by God. And until your heart finds and rests its God, it will forever remain restless. I pray that you heed my advice. Go to Jesus. Acknowledge your need for him to save you. Believe he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Commit to love and serve him the rest of your life. And when you do so, may your heart finally and truly find its rest in God. Let us pray. And dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much for choosing a people to be your own, to be of your own, that you can say to us, you will be our God and we shall be your people. Help us, Father, to push aside all the other things which compete for you to occupy the throne of our hearts. Help us to recognize them as idols. Help us to confess and repent of not putting you first, as the rightful place, as king over all our lives. Help us also to seek to find true fulfillment in you and you alone, in your delight in us, while we delight in worshipping you. I pray for those who have yet to take the step of committing themselves to Christ. I pray that you will send the Spirit to stir their hearts, open their eyes, help them to see the great need of Christ, and help them to see that the reward of Christ is always worth it. I also pray for the AGM that we have recently concluded last week, that we are able to discuss and explore what it means to have a faithful culture of engagement as we seek to build up our church to be salt and light in this world. We pray for continued unity in purpose, that all of us in OCC, we can gather around and support the work of putting the gospel first in all our lives, and to see Christ glorified in all we do. Finally, I pray for the upcoming church retreat, I pray that the preparations will go smoothly and that it will be a time of genuine fellowship, of genuine delighting in the company of one another, just as you delight in us when we worship you in spirit and in truth. 
And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.